0: Sometimes there are events in our lives that we anxiously anticipate, long for, can't wait to take place, and maybe even start marking off days on a calendar. Think about a graduation that's upcoming, or a marriage that is in the soon-offing. And we anticipate and look forward to those great events. And other times there are situations that we dread. Things that we don't look forward to, such as going to a funeral. And uh, there are some of those people that are are facing that situation even this week. Other things that uh, bring a great deal of of sorrow that that none of us long for, none of us want to take place. And then there are those events that are a mixed bag. There are aspects of it that we really enjoy, but there are other aspects of it that we don't enjoy. As Paul thinks about going to Corinth, it's a mixed bag. There are a lot of things that he's rejoicing in and people that he wants to see, people that are faithful and serving God and are looking for and longing for his coming. And so, in that sense, Paul has a great sense of anticipation. But it's a mixed bag. There are some people there that haven't appreciated the ministry of the Apostle Paul. There are some issues that he's going to have to address that brings a lot of sorrow and and difficulty. And there are then hesitancies on the part of the Apostle Paul. As we come to the end of 2 Corinthians, Paul is reiterating the fact that he is about to come to them rather quickly. If you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 14, it says, Here for this third time, I am ready to come to you. Then 2 Corinthians 13, 1. This is the third time I'm coming to you. So, Paul is repeating that he's coming. He's already been there twice. He's coming for a third time. And the entire letter of 2 Corinthians was to prepare his way for this third coming. 2 Corinthians 13.10 For this reason, I am writing these things while absent, So while absent, while he was away from them, he was writing this letter to prepare the Corinthians for his coming. And as Paul thinks about that coming, he is fearful that the Corinthians will be in a state of unrepentance. Notice verse 20 of chapter 12. For I'm afraid that perhaps when I come... I may find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish. That when he comes, he's going to find them in a state that he doesn't want them to be in. And he's going to have to conduct himself in a manner that they don't want him to conduct himself. He is afraid that there's going to be strife and jealousy Angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances, and he lists a multitude of things. That there will be people that are still unrepentant. So Paul is writing this letter, hoping that it is going to have its effect and that people indeed will repent and that he can come and just have a joyous time with them and not have to address these issues. Paul is concerned in the end of this letter that what he has written may be misunderstood. That it would not be well received. And so Paul is guarding against misconceptions that the Corinthians may have concerning Paul and his ministry. There are three misconceptions in particular that Paul is going to address in this particular section. And it is those misconceptions that we want to reflect upon and realize how relevant they are for us today as well. So the first misconception that the Corinthians may have concerning the Apostle Paul was that he was writing merely to guard his own reputation. That he was writing to guard his own reputation. That what Paul was concerned about was how he was viewed when in actuality he was really concerned about the Corinthians, spiritual well-being. Notice 2 Corinthians 12, 19. All this time, you have been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you. All this time, you think that what we are about is simply guarding our own personal reputation about how we are being viewed by you. Sometimes I get the impression that some of our political leaders are really just concerned about how they're viewed, about their reputation, about how they are received by people. And Paul is saying to them, I think that sometimes you think all I'm doing is trying to guard my own reputation. Earlier in this same letter... Paul had written that he should not need letters of recommendation to the Corinthians; rather, they should serve as letters of recommendations themselves. 2 Corinthians 3:1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need some letters of commendation to you or from you? Paul is saying, "Do I need reference letters when I'm coming to you? I've been there twice. You know me. You know my ministry." We sometimes want reference letters of people that we don't know. People that we aren't familiar with. But if we are hiring somebody that we know very, very well, then we know what they are like. Paul saying, do I need reference letters from you again? Paul refused to compare himself to others in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. However... Paul then went into a long section of boasting, as the world boasts. Notice 2 Corinthians 12:11. I've become foolish. I've become foolish. The foolishness of which he's referring to is the boasting that he's entered into. Talking about all the times that he's been imprisoned, all the times that he's uh, been uh, whipped and beaten, all of the hardships that he's endured, the dangers that he's been in. But Paul says, I did this not for my sake, but for your sake. Notice verse 11. I've become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. I didn't want to talk like this, but I needed to because that's what you relate to. That's what you admire. That's what you look up to. That's what you think is important. And so he says in the end of 2 Corinthians 12, 19, At this time you have been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ. And then these words, And all for your upbuilding, beloved. So the first misconception is that all Paul's concerned about is reputation. And that's why he's been boasting. And Paul saying, It's not about me, and it's not about my reputation. It's about you and building you up and what you forced me to do. It wasn't that Paul was concerned about his own personal reputation, but Paul was concerned about what they thought concerning his ministry. For that had tremendous spiritual ramifications. Paul wasn't So concerned that they were rejecting him as a person. But in rejecting him, they were rejecting his ministry. And rejecting his ministry, ultimately, they were rejecting the Word of God. That's what motivated Paul. That's what he was concerned about. Application. When people themselves are consumed with image and appearance... They assume that others are consumed with image and appearance as well. They project upon us their own motivations. They project upon us their own ideals. And Paul is saying to these individuals, it's not like that. It's not like that. It is hard to defend ourselves without becoming defensive. Maybe you've been in that particular situation, to try to defend yourself without being defensive. I would say to you there are two dangers that we need to avoid as Christians. The first danger is to get to the point where we just become cynical, when we become hard-hearted. And we get to the place where we say to people, well, we won't really say it to them, but we say it to ourselves, I'm not concerned about what anybody thinks. I'm not concerned about how other people view me. Now, there is a way in which that can be said very appropriately. As Christians, we have to be, to a degree, thick-skinned. That we just let certain things roll off our back. Certain insults, (laughs) certain unpleasantries. People may not always react to us the way that we would like them to. And those are the kinds of things that we just have to learn to deal with in life. And we can't just wipe people off or... Distance ourselves from them because they have quote-unquote offended us. Because they have hurt us. Uh, We've got to be bigger than that. We've got to be able to swallow some ridicule, some mockery, some displeasure, and move on. So we've got to be thick-skinned. But in being thick-skinned, We can't get to the place where we just become indifferent towards people. We have to be concerned how people view us because it reflects how they view our ministry. We have to be concerned about our testimony. We have to be concerned about our witness. About the opportunity to minister to people and to be heard. So that's a tough balancing act. Uh, That's... A tough line to walk. And that's the very line that that Paul's been walking. And he's trying to point out that, you know, I'm not boasting because I'm concerned about me, but I'm concerned about you. And you drove me to this place because I'm trying my best to minister the Word of God to you in an acceptable fashion. To administer the word of God in an acceptable fashion. So we need to realize that as we enter into relationships with other people, it shouldn't be just all about us and our feelings and how we are viewed in terms of our own self-esteem and self-worth and self-praise. But on the other hand, we do have to be concerned about how people view us because it's going to be a black eye upon the ministry or on our testimony. The second misconception was that the Corinthians thought that Paul was writing to them in order to take financial advantage of them, when in actuality he was sacrificing for them. This is a kind of strange section. As we look at the life of the Apostle Paul, you'd almost wonder how how some people could uh, view things so strangely. And as Paul addresses finances, and in particularly how those finances relate to his, his ministry, there's a spectrum at Corinth. That's a, it's a pretty amazing spectrum. It's a spectrum that exists among those that are rejecting his ministry. And on the far left... Of those that are rejecting his ministry. We find in verse 13. These words. For in what respect were we treated as inferior to the rest of the churches. Except that I myself did not become a burden to you. And then he says in a sarcastic way. Forgive me this wrong. (laughs) Forgive me this wrong. Because I ministered to you free of charge. Because I didn't want to be a burden to you. I didn't want to be a hardship to you. And so, here he is ministering free of charge. And what some people took away from that was, well, he must be inferior to the other apostles because the other apostles were giving money to and we're not giving money to Paul. So he must not be worth it. They're looking at this as being negative. Have you ever heard the adage, free advice uh, is worth what it costs? Have you ever heard that? Free advice is worth what it costs. There is the idea, well, you know, if it's free, it must not be valuable. That person must not have very much Self confidence or self worth. If it were of value, you'd pay for it, and the more you pay for it, the more valuable it is. So, on the one hand, Paul's ministering for free, and there are people who are finding fault with that because it demonstrates inferiority. And then on the other side, there are those that are questioning Paul's motives. This is odd. This guy is ministering to us for free. What? Where is he going with that? What's that all about? What way is he trying to manipulate us? What's he trying to do? So he says in verse 14, For this third time I am ready to come to you all, and I will not be a burden to you, for I do not seek what is yours, but you. You. So I'm coming again a third time. And I'm going to approach it the same way. I'm not asking anything from you. I just want to be of help to you. And then the reason he gives is at the end of verse 14. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for children. So, Paul says... This is not a demonstration of inferiority. It's a demonstration of superiority. I'm the parent here. You're the child. I'm the strong one. You're the weak one. And the children don't provide for the parents. The parents will apply for the child. Now Paul is dealing with a direct issue in, in Corinth. All the time he's at Corinth, he's receiving money from the church in Macedonia. So it's not like Paul is not willing to receive monies. But he's addressing this particular issue in Corinth. So Paul is happy to serve freely for the sake of their spiritual well-being. Verse 15. I will most gladly spend and be expended for your, your souls. And Paul's willingness to serve freely should not be a reason to despise him. Notice at the end of verse 15. If I love you the more, am I to be loved the less? Am I to be less thought of because of the way in which I'm freely doing these things? Paul had not entered into some kind of scheme to take advantage of them. Notice the end of verse 16. But be it as it, as it may, I did not burden you myself. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you in by deceit. Again, sarcastically. As though this were some ploy on Paul's part. Pretty clever comes not wanting money so that it looks like he's not going to defraud the church when all along he's got a bigger scheme in, in mind. So Paul says that he had not taken advantage of the Corinthians through his representatives. Verse 17 Certainly I have not taken advantage of you through any of those whom I have sent to you. Have I? So Paul says, it wasn't just me. Verse 18, I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Titus did not take any advantage of you, did he? Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and the same steps? So he hadn't taken advantage of the Corinthians by Titus coming or by uh, anyone else that came to the Corinthians. This is another reason why it was so important. Now, we've been a few weeks away from this particular passage. But remember, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul has said to the Corinthians, a year ago, you said you were going to take a collection the poor saints to Jerusalem. You remember that whole discussion? And in that, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 8.20 Taking precaution that no one should discredit us in our administration of this generous gift for we have regard for what is honorable not only in the sight of the Lord but also in the sight of men. And in that discussion, I pointed out how important it is that churches handle their finances in an appropriate manner. So that Paul is going to be taking this collection for the poor saints at Jerusalem, but he says, I'm not going to take it. I'm not going to oversee it. I'm going to send somebody else. Not only that, but other representatives of the church are going to go with this money. And not only that, but Paul says, and I want a representative from your church at Corinth to accompany this money also. You begin to see why that is so important In light of the fact that there are some people thinking that the Apostle Paul is some kind of scam artist and he is going to defraud the Corinthians some way. Well, what better way than to misuse the funds that are associated with this gift to the poor saints of Jerusalem? So Paul is trying to write the misconception that he's not in it for the money. He's not in it for the money. That is a misconception that comes down to us today in a powerful way. Many unregenerate people think that the church is only about money. And that All pastors, all televangelists, all missionaries, all Christian workers are nothing but defrauders that are trying to get people to give in order to make themselves rich. And we need to understand that misconception. We need to live under the canopy of that reality, that that's how people think. That's how people view us. That, again, is why we must handle the finances in an absolutely above-board, open fashion so everybody knows what is happening with those monies so that no one can be absconding with it. No one can misuse it. Secondly, just as there were false teachers in Paul's day, there are false teachers in our day. And just as the false teachers had a negative impact upon the ministry of the Apostle Paul, so false teachers have a tremendously negative impact upon the church today. Unfortunately, there are hosts of individuals that have misused funds that have been raised in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is legitimate grounds for skepticism. We don't have to think long and hard to think about some ministries. Think of PTL and that whole debacle that came about through the raising of funds by Jim Baker. And it goes bigger than that. It's it's, it's all over the place. And unfortunately, it impacts us. It impacts us. And so, how do you defend yourself without being defensive? That's the challenge. That's the challenge. And it can be as big as PTL or it can be as small as. Uh, I've been in the, in the pastorate now for uh, about 37 years. And uh, I can remember very vividly, when I entered the ministry, the change in perception that people had towards me. Before I'd entered the pastorate, okay, and and I entered the pastorate at at a rather young age, but before that time, you know, I had done just about everything you could do in the church. I taught Sunday school. I played the piano. Yes, that seems amazing. That's a whole other era. But yeah, I used to play the piano. And I uh, uh, taught Sunday school. And I was the Sunday school superintendent. And I was... yeah, you know, I, I, I did just about everything. In the life of the church. But as soon as I got a paycheck. People assumed... But the reason I was doing it was because I got the paycheck. Not because I love the Lord or I love the church. As soon as you get a paycheck, you become suspicious. Suspicious. And I've had people say to me already, not in the church, but outside the church, well, you need to say that because you're paid to say that. That's the, the thought. You have to say that because that's how you make it your livelihood. And I try to say, no, you got it backwards. The reason I became a pastor was so that I had the opportunity to say these things. But the motives are going to be, be uh, the motives are going to be questioned by people who are unregenerate or unrepentant. We just need to be aware of that. We need to have eyes wide open. So we need to be careful that we don't do things that are going to feed those misconceptions. But hopefully will undermine and erode those misconceptions. And it affects not only the institutional church, but I would say it affects you and your witness for Jesus Christ. We live in a cynical day and people are going to be questioning what's in it for you. Why are you doing this? The good that you do. When people are driven by selfish ambition, they assume that everyone else is driven by that same selfish ambition. The third misconception the 2 Corinthians thought, was that Paul was writing them out of a sense of animosity or hatred when actually he was writing out of a love for them. Notice verse 19. All this time you've been thinking that we're defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ. And all for your upbuilding, and now these words, beloved, beloved. It was not Paul who had failed to show love for them, but rather the Corinthians who had failed to show love for Paul. Notice verse 15. At the end of the verse, If I love you the more, am I to be loved the less? Paul had written to them, not out of animosity for the Corinthians, but out of a love for the Corinthians. Second 2 Corinthians 2.4 But you know the love with which I have especially for you. Paul writes in chapter 5, verse 14, For the love of Christ controls us. Paul had written out of a love that was willing to endure all kinds of hardships giving no cause for offense in anything, in order that the ministry be not discredited, but in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God, in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and now these words, in genuine love. Why had Paul been willing to suffer all these things? Because he loved them. Paul had written out of love that God would attest to. 2 Corinthians 11.11 Why? Because I do not love you. God knows that I love you. Paul had not written out of animosity but out of love. Application. Our world, the unregenerate world, Which is not unique to the time period in which we live, but it's always been the case, has a very faulty perception of what love is. The world's concept of love is that any lifestyle should not only be tolerated, not only tolerated, but condoned, and not only condoned, but celebrated. Paul writes, In 1 Corinthians, it is reported, actually, that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind that does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone would have his father's wife. And you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead. And so, the Corinthians have become arrogant. They had become proud of the fact that they were so tolerant... That they were so loving, that they were so kind, that they would welcome and accept a person in their midst who was having a sexual relationship with with his own mother. And Paul says, the world wouldn't even accept that. But you pride yourself in accepting that kind of immorality. Here's the challenge. How do you address sin without coming across as a hate monger? As a person who is intolerant, insufferable, narrow-minded, unloving, and uncaring? We need to be very much aware Of how Christianity in our culture is becoming more and more viewed as being hateful. That Christians are hateful. That we hate lesbians. That we hate homosexuals. That we hate abortionists. That we hate, that we hate, that we hate. Do you understand that? That's how we're viewed. And again, with some proper skepticism. Because we associate ourselves with hate mongers. Because the evangelical church is associating those that really do hate homosexuals, that really do hate these individuals. And we don't cry against the hatred. We only cry against the sin. We need to understand how we're being perceived. How the world is looking at us. We need to understand that when people have a problem with us, they naturally assume that we have a problem with them. They fail to see rebuke and correction as care, but rather as harassment and authoritarianism. We live in a culture that any form of criticism is taken personally. That is, then you don't like me. If you say anything that would hurt me, if you say anything that's unkind, if you're going to point out anything in my life, then, then you must not like me. In fact, you must hate me the loving thing would be to accept me the way I am, well, that filtrates actually right down into even the family unit. And in our culture, we're getting to the place where parents feel like they can't even correct their own children because their children will think they don't love them. They don't care for them. And we have parents that are afraid to say no. Because then the children are going to think that they don't love me. We have parents that, that won't address the sin in the lives of their own children, lest they turn their children off. And they rebel against them and they run away. Or they'll not want to have anything to do with them. So the loving thing becomes silence. And the loving thing becomes don't rock the boat. Don't say anything unpleasant. Never say anything that is going to make somebody feel uncomfortable. That's the predicament that Paul is in. How do you address the sinfulness of this church without being viewed as a person who is totally unloving? Paul's response to that is, Do I really need to prove it to you? Can't you see it? Don't you get it? Don't you understand that that's why I was boasting? Don't you understand that's why I didn't take any money from you? Don't you understand that's why I went through shipwrecks, I went through beatings, I went through imprisonments. I did all these things because I love you. The greatest defense that we can make in demonstrating to people that it's not out of hatred, it's not out of animosity, but it's out of love that we address these issues. And I hope that's the case the greatest defense that we can give is a self-sacrificial spirit. When people are forced to see within us a care that is genuine, that is real. Children, teens, I implore you When your parents discipline you and they say no to certain things and they want to correct your behaviors, it's not because they hate you. It's not because they don't like you. It is because they love you. The easiest thing would be to ignore it. And the very reason they don't ignore it is because they do love you. And how do you know that they love you? Look at the ways that they have sacrificed for you. Look at what they have done for you. Look at how they are there for you. Don't confuse Correction with hatred. Paul says, I've loved you. Don't let the church's correction be confused with hatred. In conclusion, the same three misconceptions are around today. We have to be aware of them. We have to deal with them. The first is that we are primarily concerned about ourselves and our reputation. About how people view us. And then we have to be honest with ourselves. Is that true? Is that true? And one way to answer that is Am I different in public than I am in private? Do I project a certain image in in public that's not real in my private life? Do I want to appear to be good and righteous or am I really interested in being good and righteous? Am I just interested in how people view me Or do I want to be genuine? I find that when people come to me and and are seeking help or assistance, the very first thing out of the mouth and the thing that they're most concerned with is that nobody finds out. They don't want to be tarnished in how people view them. We need to be genuine, we need to be sincere. We need to be authentic. Not just how people view me, but how I really am. And then, in that authenticity, to be concerned that I just don't wipe people off. But I am concerned how people view me because it's going to affect the ministry and how well they respond to me. The second misconception is they're all about money. It's all about greed. It's all about what we can get out of it. And that we're just fleecing people. That's huge. And the third, and I think the greatest danger for us, is there are a bunch of hate mongers. Intolerant people. With no genuine concern and interest in others. And just want to rail against the evils and wrongdoings of our culture. And there, my friends, I think we have to practice separation in the clearest way. We have to distance ourselves from people that may have similar standards. But yet, motivated by hatred of others. That can't be us. That can't be us. We can't be mockers. We can't be ridiculers. We can't be those that beat up people for the lifestyles that they are. We can't be planting bombs in abortion centers. We can't be people of hatred. We have to be people of love. But being people of love is not being people without standards. We have to hold to that which is good. We have to hate evil. And all the time, doing good ourselves. It's not easy. But that's what God has called us to do. Let's pray. Our Father, help us. Help us. Guard us, O God. Guard our reputations. Guard how people view us, not just for our own sake, but for the sake of the ministry. So preserve us and keep us, Lord, that these misconceptions would really be that, just simply misconceptions, that they would not be real concerning us. So guard our hearts, that we aren't people just concerned about our reputations, rather concerned with truth and genuineness. That we would not be people that are motivated by greed and self-interest, but in a spirit of sacrifice, really concerned about the well-being of others. And oh God, that we would not be hate mongers, We would not be people who are intolerant. That we would be people that would want to see harm done to others. But Lord, help us in true, genuine love to stand firm for that which is true and right and just and good. Help us with tears in our eyes to discipline our children. To take positions and standards. All the time willing to sacrifice, giving ourselves to the nth degree, for their well-being. Oh Lord, may we live such a life that we cannot be accused of hate-mongering just because we want to hold to a standard of righteousness and holiness and justice and goodness. Guard us from the temptation to give in to the pressure of this world and to say that loving relationships. Never say anything unpleasant or difficult or hard. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.